This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Friday, October 13th. On the pod today, Palestinians in northern Gaza have been told to pack their belongings and leave. It's a sign that an Israeli ground invasion could soon begin. We'll hear from a Canadian who is stuck in Gaza with his family, and I'll ask a spokesperson for the Israeli military how civilians can get to safety. Plus, here at home, the Supreme Court has ruled the federal government's environmental impact legislation largely unconstitutional. We've got reaction from the federal energy minister and the premier of Alberta. We're going to take you to a live shot of the Gaza skyline where it's just after midnight there. Last night, Israel told more than a million Palestinians in northern Gaza to move south, signaling a ground assault is likely coming. The Israel Defense Forces have been building up along the border with Gaza, fueling speculation that it's preparing to invade in response to last weekend's attack by Hamas. We're going to bring you an update from the ground now. The CBC's Paul Hunter is in East Jerusalem. So, Paul, you have been to Gaza many times in your career. How realistic is this evacuation to you? Uh, David, you know, even uh, at the best of times, uh, and I've been north to south in Gaza multiple times, it's, it's not an easy endeavor. Uh, everything there takes a long time, um, let alone for 1.1 million people doing it all at the same time, let alone when the streets are, you know, littered, covered, blocked by rubble of the blasted uh, buildings, the neighborhoods that have been, you know, obliterated, flattened in their entirety, let alone uh, elderly people, young people, people who are fearful or disabled, uh, who have no fuel to get in their cars and go, but must walk, as we've seen these pictures all day of people throwing mattresses over their shoulders and bags with the dwindling bits of food that they have left. It, on its face, it seems like madness to think this could happen. And then to have 1.1 million people, if they can get down to the south, actually fit Right? I mean, Gaza is jammed with people as it stands. Uh, the whole thing seems preposterous in many ways. And yet they're also doing it under the implied threat of potential death. You know, the reason that they're doing it anyway, or trying to, is because they've seen the airstrikes. They know what they can do. They've seen it every day for the past week. And if they don't go, goes the implication, it's only going to get worse. But, you know, we were down in southern Israel yesterday, just outside the border, and we, were, we saw the, we were doing another story, we were at the side of the rave, but we saw the fighter jets going over into southern Gaza even yesterday, where they're headed. There was a safe route, you know, set up by the IDF today, that was supposed to expire at 8 o'clock local time tonight, it was a couple of hours ago already, past that. Uh, nobody knew, nobody knows what it means now that that deadline has passed, as they try to in a panicked state of mind, get down there. It's, as I say, it's, 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 the concept alone is preposterous, having been there many times myself. You know, you're, you're right about the space challenges too, Paul. We spoke to a Canadian woman who's in southern Gaza right now in a house owned by her family, and there are 200 people in a single three-story house. So that gives you an idea of the challenge there. So the civilians, obviously, a factor in, all, uh, in this. So are the hostages. What do we know about the hostages that Hamas has? Sure, and I'll just say on the other, 
you know, running out of room. They don't have room to bury people anymore. I mean, that's how, that's how, <laughs> that's how compact the place is and the, what's going on down there. The hostages, we don't know. You know, not publicly anyway. Uh, it, it's still by and large a mystery. We know that Hamas today was saying that uh, 13 of the hostages had been killed by Israeli airstrikes. Uh, they didn't put a time frame on that, but 13. Um, and in fairness, that's a risk in these circumstances, right? I mean, presuming the IDF does not know where uh, the hostages are being held and presuming they're all spread out all over the place. And if you're going to keep up the airstrikes, it, it is a risk. That said, uh, Israel says no. Uh, they deny that the 13 have been killed. They say they've got intel inside the Gaza Strip that says, um, you know, uh, Hamas is telling lies on this. Um, but the larger question of, of where are they, uh, you know, nobody knows. I mean, that was part of the, there was a, uh, 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 Israeli infantry got in, they fought their way in, another story out there today, uh, seeking information for them. Evidently, they got some information that could lead them somewhere, um, but it remains a mystery, is the bottom line, David. Okay, Paul, thank you so much. That's the CBC's Paul Hunter with us tonight. Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus is an international spokesperson for the Israel Defense Forces. We spoke to him last night. He joins us again today. Lieutenant Colonel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Israel has ordered Palestinians in Gaza to evacuate the north. The implication last night or the suggestion last night was that the deadline was midnight local time today, which is about six minutes ago. Is that accurate? Is that the deadline that they had to evacuate? Yeah, contrary to what uh, your reporter was uh, talking about, and I found the reporting very, very odd, as if we are to blame about the situation in Gaza, I'll answer the question. We are trying to do the right thing here. We are at war. We did not ask for this war. We were attacked. Our civilians were butchered, executed, and taken hostage, and now we are responding. The civilian population in Gaza is not our enemy. And in order to minimize the risk of death and casualties, we are telling the civilians, we are uh, advertising our intentions, which mm -hmm. usually doesn't make sense. We're in military operations, but we are doing that, telling the civilians, go south and save yourselves. I didn't hear it mentioned by your reporter that Hamas is telling people not to vacate. How, how could that not be reported? Because I think that's a very vital piece of information. The very same organization that butchered our civilians and governs the strip then tells their civilians not to vacate. We are telling them out of a respect for their lives to vacate. Now, how absurd is that? Right. Uh, look, I, I'm not going to defend the actions of Hamas. Uh, clearly, they are a, a challenge in there, uh, a problem in there. But I, I'm trying to understand, because the United Nations issued statements last night suggesting the deadline was midnight, so seven minutes ago now. Is that, in fact, the deadline? When is the deadline? And what happens when we hit the deadline? So the, I'm not going to get, get into a time frame. I'm going to just keep it at the higher level and say some very simple things. We gave the Palestinians in Gaza a lot of time, ample time, to take their belongings and move south. It's possible for them to move south in a relatively safe way, given the situation that we are in, that we are actively fighting a war, and that rockets continue to be fired at the very location that I am in, Tel Aviv. And of course, southern Israel, unfortunately, it goes without saying. 
So out of concern for their lives, we told them, move south. We are preparing the area for a significant military activity in Gaza City. That is the next stage, and that's why we are asking civilians go south of the Gaza River. Do not listen to what Hamas says, because Hamas wants you dead. Hamas wants a humanitarian catastrophe. Hamas wants the world to speak about the situation in Gaza and of dead Palestinians. We don't want dead civilian Palestinians. We want dead Hamas terrorists. They are our scope. They are our enemy. And this war will end once Hamas has been totally dismantled of its military capabilities. Hopefully, civilians will be spared. And if they listen to our warnings, they have a higher chance of getting out of it alive. If they listen to Hamas, they are actively endangering themselves. But, L- Lieutenant Colonel, we spoke with some Canadians uh, who are in Gaza, in Gaza City. They are in the northern part of the territory. They are in the area you say should be evacuated. These are not Hamas fighters. These are Canadians who were visiting family. And they say they can't go south because you're still, your military is still firing into the area and, and Israeli shells are still falling from the sky and they just can't get to where you want them to go. So what are they supposed to do? Well, I suggest that they wait. It's good that they are listening to the instructions and have the intention of going. thing to do. They should wait until the bombs stop uh, falling for a pause and then get on their way. Uh, Many, many Palestinians are doing that, moving south. We see that. We are not attacking the civilians. We are not targeting them. And, of course, the entire aim of what's happening is for them to be able to move south so that they are not in Gaza and are less at risk for the coming uh, stage of the operation. So I wish them well. I hope they can get to safety. And they should do so as fast as possible, as soon as there's a gap between bombing. They should do so as soon as possible. I, I know you say you're not targeting civilians, but there were reports that a convoy carrying evacuees towards the southern Gaza Valley was reportedly hit by an Israeli airstrike and 70 people, mostly women and children, were killed. So, I mean, to the outside world, sir, this looks like you're telling people to evacuate, but intentional or not, Israel dropped a bomb on them. I don't think that's how it looks to the outside world. Maybe to you and, and people with a certain worldview, but that, I don't think that's the picture here. Well, what we is the picture, against sir? The t- Uh, So if you'll let me, I would be glad to show you my perspective of the picture. The picture is that we were attacked. Our civilians were butchered. They crossed our border and went into our communities, murdered our women and children, took them hostage. And you're now lecturing me on the situation, the humanitarian situation in Gaza? No, we are taking active measures to minimize the threat to civilians. We are telling them, we are uh, advertising what we're going to do because we do care about civilians and they are not our enemies. On the other hand, those that fight against us, Hamas, are using the very same civilians as human shields. They hide between the civilians. They use the civilian buildings to fight against us. They use, they have dug tunnels underneath Gaza and they're using the buildings above the tunnels as their human shields. Why is this not the focus of what we're talking about? Why isn't it that how Hamas has set the stage for this situation by building the infrastructure using civilians, by launching this murderous attack against Israel, and now by telling their civilians not to vacate. That should be front and center of anybody in the world looking at the situation here. Not the fact that we are defending ourselves and not the fact that we are trying 
to set the situation straight here and to focus on Hamas and its military capabilities. I cannot confirm or deny what happened with that specific bus. I've heard the reports, but I can categorically say that we are not targeting civilians. Categorically. If we were, then the situation would be totally different. We are not. No, sir, and I am not trying to lecture you. I am trying to ask questions. This is a very difficult situation, and I understand your anger after what happened on Saturday. And please do not take any of these questions as an attempt by me to minimize those murders. That is not what I'm doing. But I, I have spent my day speaking with Canadian citizens, 16 years old and 19 years old, and they are stuck in Gaza and they cannot get out. And they are terrified that they're not going to live through the weekend. 1,700 civilians, people have been killed inside Gaza since your, your, your attack started. And I know your intent is to eradicate Hamas, but there has already been significant collateral damage. A journalist crew was killed in Lebanon today. So I, 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 this is why I ask these questions, not to lecture and not to minimize what has happened to your country. Listen, I understand that it's your job to ask questions, but I think the choice of questions really has importance here. And I understand that uh, civilians who are there are afraid and concerned. But look, on the other side, we evacuated all of the Israeli citizens in southern Israel. The places are empty. It's mm -hmm. ghost towns. All of the communities around the Gaza border, they're empty. Either killed, butchered, or wounded by Hamas, or taken hostage, or actively evacuated by the IDF. And they're all over Israel now, in hotels, or with family, or wherever they have found a place to be. Why? Because we don't want civilians in an active combat zone. That's also what we've told the Palestinians. It's an active combat zone. Get out. So on that, how do they get out? So I know you've told them to evacuate from the north to the south, but your military operations have continued and people have said it's not safe for them to go out because they don't know when this is going, when a bomb is going to fall from the sky. Whether you're targeting them or not, they're afraid. Their family members are being killed and, and friends have been killed. The, all of the exit points from Gaza are closed. Now, we heard from Canadian government officials today that there are conversations with Israel, Egypt, Canada about opening up the Rafah Bridge to, to get people out that way, potentially tomorrow between 12 and 5. Is that a viable option? Do you think that is possible? Will, will the larger military operation inside Gaza be held off long enough for this potential humanitarian corridor to be opened? You know, that's a question that needs to be asked of uh, Hamas. Hamas governs the Gaza Strip. Mm -hmm. Hamas controls it, and Hamas is, bears ultimate responsibility for what happens in Gaza. Hamas initiated this war, they launched the attack on Israel, and Hamas continue to fight against Israel as the fighting on goes. They continue to fire rockets at our civilians. An hour and a half ago, there was a, a rocket alarm in Tel Aviv, where I am, and millions of Israelis rush to their shelters in the middle of Shabbat dinner, and you speak about fear and anxiety of uh, the Canadian nationals in Gaza. Well, there's fear and anxiety and death in Israel. Yes, sir. We, and we have spoken to Canadian-Israeli dual nationals who, who were there and have fled it. Uh, our reporters ha have been to the scene of the music festival and reported on the slaughter and the massacre that happened there. I, I, I know you're probably not watching all of our coverage. I, I appreciate that. But I, I want to assure you that we are telling that side of the story as well. Uh, but, you know, the, the, our humanity has to go in a lot of directions. And, and there are innocent people uh, in Gaza. You say this yourself, that they are, they are not your enemies. Right? 
Yes, exactly. Humanity goes should go two directions, and our humanity is the fact that we are telling them go to the stay clear of Gaza City because we're going to operate there. That is a an mm -hmm. actual expression of our humanity, which is in such sharp contrast to the lack of humanity of our enemies. Not only do they target our civilians, but they use their civilians in order to protect themselves. Hamas uses Gazan civilians in order to protect themselves. And I think it is despicable. That should be the front and center of the entire conversation about what's going on here. Yes, there's always two sides to a story, but one side is has been attacked has suffered 1,300 casualties and didn't want this war, mm -hmm. and the other side knowingly went into our cities and butchered our civilians, and they continue to fire rockets, and they continue to hold our hostages, men, women, children, and elderly. So there is no moral parity between us and Hamas. For uh, civilians, wherever they are, understand that. But listen, we are at war. We cannot be expected to forfeit our ability to defend ourselves just because a terrorist organization has rigged the entire Gaza Strip to serve its military goals. We have to uh, totally, fundamentally change the situation in Gaza, and we have to rid our southern border of this this cancerous threat that Hamas is. We cannot continue to live like this. We cannot allow an organization that is as vicious and as murderous as ISIS was in its heyday to continue to live and see the light of day for even one day after this war is over. We cannot be allowed to do it, and we shouldn't be expected to either. Right. And, and look, L Lieutenant Colonel, like Hamas is not going to speak to us. Right. We're not able to ask them the, any kind of questions the way you you uh, are, are willing to come on and, and take these questions from us, which, which I do appreciate. So uh, I know you say in terms of the southern exit, that is a question for Hamas. Uh, the limitations are what they are. So just as a final question to you, should Hamas allow people to get there? Would the, would the IDF uh, facilitate a humanitarian corridor into Egypt to help uh, foreign nationals get out of this area? I'll, I'll do you one better. What Hamas should do is to stop fighting, return our hostages, surrender unconditionally, and Yihya Sinwar and all of his other commanders and political leaders of Hamas should surrender without condition that would be the best humanitarian step anybody could take in Gaza, and it would save countless lives. Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conriquez uh, of the Israeli Defense Forces, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you taking our questions. Thank you. Thank you. A journalist covering this conflict has been killed near Israel's border with Lebanon. Reuters has confirmed Issam Abdallah died today in an artillery strike. He was a news videographer. Several journalists around him were wounded. Reuters is not saying who fired the attack. In a statement, the news agency said it's urgently seeking more information, working with authorities in the region, and supporting Assam's family and colleagues. Palestinians packed their belongings and left their homes in northern Gaza today after being told by Israel to flee.
Some have left, packing into cars or taking the trip by foot, but many have stayed, scared to leave, unwilling to leave, or with nowhere to go. Gaza has been pummeled with missiles since the weekend Hamas attack on Israel. They have wiped out entire neighborhoods and left streets covered in rubble, making the trip from north to south difficult. Now, there has been some confusion around a deadline for the evacuation of northern Gaza. The UN said last night there was a 24-hour time frame. The Israeli Defense Forces has not publicly stated a deadline, saying instead it's as soon as possible. There's been some confusion around a deadline for the evacuation of northern Gaza. The UN said there was a 24-hour time frame. The Israeli Defense Force has not publicly stated a deadline. Saeed Al-Husoimi is a Canadian citizen stuck in Gaza with his family. We managed to reach him by phone as telecommunication in the area is challenging. The audio quality, as you can imagine, in a war zone is not ideal. I started by asking Saeed about his current situation. Right now we're in the city of Beit Lahe in Gaza. It's closer to the border. We're trying our best to evacuate. But since you know there's lots of bombing going on and it's kind of hard because we try to evacuate. And to the conclusion, over 70 people died. So we didn't want to take the risk. Me and my family did not want to take the risk, and we stayed home. So even though they've given you a deadline to move, the bombing is continuing, which makes it unsafe for you to head to the south. Exactly. Well, me and my family were confused. They told us to leave from the north and go to far south. Me and my family contacted one of my father's friends, and they couldn't find a place because, like, you know, 1.1 million people in a small area like a lot. So then we stayed home. We're going to go out and then we check the news. Like 70 people died just trying to go to the north, like kids, men, women, like all kinds of else and everything. So, so help me, do you have somewhere to go, Saeed? I, I mean, even if it was safe for you to, to flee, do you have somewhere where you could go and stay? Because there's you, your, your father, your mother, and your siblings there. Do you have somewhere you can go? Let me be completely honest with you. At this point, we really don't know. Like, my father, like, he's a busy man. He gets contacting everybody he knows. Like, he's scared. He doesn't want to risk his children's life. He just wants to go back to Canada and live his life. Like, I'm scared too. It's just, I'm not trying to show it because I have siblings that are younger than me. I'm trying to be, like, the kind of, like, the bigger brother and, like, step up and, like, trying to show them not to be scared. Every time I look in their eyes, like, they're scared not to live another day. And they have a long life ahead of us. Like, we don't know we're going to go. We don't know where we're going to go at this point. Like, we try, we've been contacting everybody. We've been uh, contacting the Canadian government. We, uh, we emailed multiple times. We emailed the Canadian embassy multiple times. And so far, we don't have a major news. We called the, um, but there was, uh, what's it called again? There was an airport aircraft from Air Canada at Tel Aviv that we checked the news October 12, 13, and 14. They're sending aircraft to take people away. And we can't get there since Hamas took over the borders of um, Israel. Okay, I, I wanted to ask you back, because so, so you're 16, right? Uh, I, I've got that correct? Yes. You say exactly. Hamas has taken over the borders. Israel has laid siege from the outside. Is Hamas or anyone else stopping you from moving to the part of Gaza that Israel says will be safe, or is it the bombing by the Israeli forces that is stopping you? It's like the bombing, like itself. Like we want to move, but we can't. Like the destruction in the streets is insane. If if you can check the news, like buildings, like on the streets, there's no way people can even walk. It's hard. 
And it's not even that. It's like, if you try walking, I'm going to say some people have the guts. So it could think if they're ill and like other people are like bombing the ambulances, the ambulance can't even save the people. And you can only see the people dead in the floor. Like they're dead. You can see the bugs all over them. It's insane. Like, I, like this is a feeling I never felt before in my life. But is Hamas getting in the way at all, or are they allowing people to move? What's your sense of that from where you are right now, Saeed? Um, so far, I don't even know about that kind of stuff, because right. we, we've been trying to move, but we really can't because of the department. Like, five minutes ago, before you guys called me, they bombed a uh, big building near us, a big building, and it was for my dad's friend. There were there was a briefing today here in Ottawa uh, from the government of Canada suggesting that there are mm-hmm. conversations with Israel and Egypt on the possibility of a humanitarian corridor into Egypt at the Rafah exit from Gaza tomorrow between noon and 5 p.m. your time. Have you heard anything about this? Have you been in contact with anyone from the Canadian government? Has anyone there told you about this? It's not definite but they say they're working on it. Have you been informed of any of this? To be completely honest with you, when me and my dad called them, they said two to one, two to at least a week. Two days to at least a week. And we got scared. We're talking to them. We're like, oh, we don't even know if we're going to make that long because of like, the, like, the words in Palestine right now. Like, it's crazy. Like, just to hear from you, I don't even know tomorrow that they're having from noon to the evening. I don't even know that. Right. So... Okay, so you've not heard anything about this. If if this corridor does open, would you even be able to get to the Gaza-Egypt border? Based on the, what you're describing, uh, it sounds like it would be difficult. Look, it's a 50-50% chance, which my father, I don't know if he's willing to take. That's why he's been contacting the Canadians, because when he started contacting them, they said they were working with the United Nations to talk to Egypt and to talk to Israel to send private cars to us and to any other Canadian citizen in Gaza. And we don't know if that is true or not. Hopefully it is. So you don't know what happens next. You don't know where you're going to go next. You don't know what you're going to do next. Exactly. How... how, um how is your family doing, Saeed? I, I know you're 16, and, and you're, you've been asked to tell your story, but you're there with your dad, your mom, another brother, and, and three daughters. How, how is everybody? It's like the first time in my life seeing my dad scared. I always thought my dad was like invincible and stuff, like he didn't get scared, but that's the first time I seen him scared. Like, it actually got crazy. And I'm like, I mean, my my siblings are like always crying from the bomb sounds. Like they're always covering the music. But I don't know what to do. Well, Saeed, um, thank, thank you for speaking to us and, and good luck. And you have the information to contact our team. Uh, if we get information on the humanitarian corridor, we will send it to you. And if you get any information and, or need to reach out, please make contact with our team. Okay, okay. Saeed, good luck, man. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Have a good day. 
We are extremely pleased with the Supreme Court of Canada's decision confirming the unconstitutionality of the federal government's destructive impact assessment act. The Supreme Court of Canada ruled today that the federal government's environmental impact law was largely unconstitutional. Now, this is the act that gives the federal government the power to trump big projects such as coal mines or oil sands projects if it deems they are not in the public interest. Jonathan Wilkinson is Canada's Minister of Energy and Natural Resources. Minister Wilkinson, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. So you said that, 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 that the concerns brought forward in the decision can be dealt with in a relatively surgical way. So what does that look like? Well, first I will say um, the ruling came down today, so we need to make the, need to take the appropriate time to digest it. But, but we will need to make some amendments to the Act. We intend to, uh, to develop those over the coming weeks. Um, certainly, I think it's important that we try to do this in an expeditious way. Um, and we will need to bring those back and, uh, and essentially bring them through the House and, and through the Senate. So th there are currently 32 projects winding through the assessment process. Where does this leave those projects right now? Well, those will continue um, through the process. Obviously, we will be very uh, focused on ensuring that the impact assessment agency, which is the agency that essentially monitors these, is uh, in their assessment focused very much on impacts in areas of federal jurisdiction. As I say, that is the way in which the, the agency has worked from the beginning anyway, but we will certainly ensure that because that is what the court has, has asked us to do. Um, but I don't anticipate there being significant impacts on projects that are already moving through. But as I say, to ensure that there is clarity um, and greater certainty, we will be expeditious in terms of how we manage the amendments. There are people in industry who have long been frustrated by what they say are the opportunity costs lost on this because of what they call your government's failure to ensure uh, the constitutionality of this process. What do you say to them? Well, I say to them that, you know, we spent a couple of years developing this uh, act uh, to try to ensure that we actually got it right. Um, you know, prior to uh, the, the Harbour government had got it environmental assessment legislation, we had lost the ability to actually achieve any level of uh, consensus because nobody trusted the system and nobody trusted that government on environmental issues nor on the respect for Indigenous rights. So we tried to come up with a system that would actually ensure that through um, an assessment of impacts on federal jurisdiction, that those issues were being considered early on and addressed so the good projects could move much more quickly. Um, and, uh, and we will have to go back and make some amendments to ensure that it's clear that we are focused on areas of federal jurisdiction in a federation. That's a reasonable thing to do. Um, but I would say that the pro process itself actually has been working. I mean, there was a, 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 an LNG project that went through the process, um, a BC LNG project that went through the process in less than three years. You would never have seen that with the Harper process. But we have a situation now. Uh, we're going to speak with uh, Alberta Premier Daniel Smith about this later in the show. This challenge started with former Alberta Premier uh, Jason Kenney. They've long argued that this is federal overreach. And, and today, I guess they've been handed. Right. So, so what, what do you say to them? Well, I say to them um, that uh, the act itself, the court has decided that we need to go back and ensure that it is much more closely tethered to areas of federal jurisdiction. But I want to be clear, areas of federal jurisdiction include greenhouse gas emissions, as was upheld by the Supreme Court of Canada. They include fish and fish habitats, so most of the water bodies in Canada. It includes species at risk, and there are almost 700 of those across the country. It includes migratory birds, and it includes respect for the rights of Indigenous peoples. And that the court has upheld that, that those are legitimate areas for the federal government to continue to play a role. So Premier Smith can say whatever she wants in terms of this being a great victory for, uh, for the provinces. But at the end of the day, we have never endeavored 
to interfere with areas that are clearly provincial jurisdiction. But things like greenhouse gas emissions are not. Right. And, uh, and I, you know, I think that um, the, the, the provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan need to be very careful about how they interpret this ruling. No, and, and we know the Supreme Court has ruled on greenhouse gas emissions in the challenge of carbon pricing and the carbon tax uh, policy. But uh, this sort of deals with this at the Supreme Court, this particular debate. But Justice Wagner wrote about how environmental protection remains one of today's most pressing challenges. So how does this affect your environmental agenda and your protection plans that are, that are part of that? Well, as I say, um, the environmental agenda, there's kind of a, a number of components. One is conservation, and we will continue on with the conservation agenda to achieve the 30 by 30 protection targets that must happen around the world if we're going to stop the decline in global biodiversity. We will continue to move forward with respect to the climate agenda, um, and uh, and that's something that, I, as, I, as you said, the, the, the court has upheld. Um, you know, when, when Premier Smith talks about federal overreach, I, I would be curious to dig into exactly what she means by that. Um, because at the end of the day, if what she means is the federal government has no role to play with respect to um, regulating greenhouse gas emissions and an achievement of Canada's climate targets, I would just say to her, I don't think that's the right interpretation. Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, thank you for your time. Thank you. Well, this case is, of course, a big win for Alberta, the province that launched this constitutional challenge. For more reaction to the Supreme Court decision, I'm joined now by Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. Premier Smith, welcome back to the show. My pleasure. Uh, you, your predecessor, Jason Kenney, long opponents of this legislation. What's your reaction to what the Supreme Court has had to say? Well, it's a clear victory for provincial rights. It means that the Constitution actually matters, that we have areas that are defined under Section 92. And in the Constitution, it says we've got the exclusive jurisdiction to develop our resources in our own way, as well as develop electricity. And we intend to make sure that the federal government honors the, the spirit and the letter of the, of the decision today and back down on some of the legislation that they've been trying to, to foist on us for many years. I, I think the sad part is, they act in a, an illegal way, an unconstitutional way, and then they make us go to court for six years to be able to get our rights back. But I'm pleased to see that the Supreme Court made the right decision today. We, we've just spoken with Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, and, and he argues that in spite uh, of this decision, they've enforced and interpreted the act broadly in compliance with the spirit of this decision, and they think there's a path forward with amendments uh, and changes to the law that they can still move ahead with this legislation. What do you think is going to happen there? Well, uh, the amendments they need to make is to stop trying to interfere in provincial jurisdiction. The court was very clear that the federal government does have constitutional authority over cross-border projects. If you're building a, a pipeline or transmission line that goes cross-border between provinces or even down into the United States, uh, I've always acknowledged that they have the right to be able to make those decisions. But they do not have the right to tell us that we can or cannot build power plants, that we can or cannot build roads, that, they can or, that we can or cannot develop our resources. That's where they've drawn the line. And I would hope that the federal government would respect that. It's, it's been a very clear ruling that any major industrial project solely within the boundaries of an individual province are to the province to, uh, to, to provide the regulatory oversight, not the federal government. And they, they need to respect that decision and, and not try to find any kind of weasel words to be able to, to try to maintain unconstitutional legislation because we won't stand for it. Well, 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 what they're saying is obviously they will abide by this, by the Supreme Court, and amend the legislation to bring it into compliance. But uh, they're still insistent that the earlier Supreme Court ruling on the challenge of, of the carbon tax does give them the right to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. Nothing changes on that front. So there could be collision between that right and the ones that have been uh, preserved in here. I see you shaking your head. Why? 
Yeah, you bet there'll be collision because any emissions cap that is unreasonable, unrealistic, where the technology doesn't exist, that is too aggressive, is a production cap. And a production cap is a clear violation of our right to be able to develop our resources. Same thing with electricity. We have to be able to keep our lights on. We have to be able to ensure reliability and affordability. And we will assert that right. Where we'll work with the federal government is, as we always have said, from the very first conversation I had with the prime minister, aligning around a 2050 carbon neutrality target. And that's what they should be coming to the table with, is working with us in our areas of jurisdiction to be able to achieve that joint goal. And if they do that, then I I don't think there'll be a need for any more uh, court decisions, but we will defend vigorously the rights that the that the Supreme Court acknowledged today. So, uh, obviously, look, there's still going to be some issues to be sorted out between you and the federal government. I think that that's a safe assumption to say here. But uh, what projects or, uh, or, or plans that, that you have on the books right now that you felt couldn't go ahead under this existing framework may be able to go ahead now that we have this uh, decision from the Supreme Court? Well, I can tell you that they've created so much uncertainty in our electricity grid. We're a natural gas basin, and most of our natural gas, right, or most of our power grid right now is fueled by natural gas, and yet I have no natural gas projects in the queue because they've created so much uncertainty over how those projects can go forward and be approved. As a result, we're now having uh, periodic times where our power grid has been near failure. We've had eight times this year where it's been near failure. So we are going to go ahead and commission baseload power so that we can keep the long lights on. That would be one example. Uh, another example uh, was the Tech Frontier Mine from years ago. It was a $20.6 billion project that got shelved because they couldn't navigate through the regulatory process. If they want to resurrect that project, knowing that we have the regulatory approval to go ahead with it, we'd be more than happy to reconsider that. Those are the kind of things that we'll be looking for. I'm sending the message. Alberta's open for business. We, we have a 2050 emissions reduction target we will work with the federal government on, but we're going to be approving projects. But we, uh, like I can see this obvious collision coming now because while this decision does change the federal role in, in project approval, nothing today changes their ability to regulate greenhouse gas emissions across the country. That has clearly been decided by the Supreme Court of Canada. So I, I know you say they need to, to sort of butt out of your plans, but there's still a clear legally Supreme Court validated role for Ottawa to play in this. Well, we we have an emissions reduction plan. We were the first to bring in industrial carbon pricing. We were the first to develop carbon capture utilization and storage. We set a a target to reduce methane emissions 45%, and we achieved it. We have an emissions reduction and energy development plan that takes us to 2050. We have an MOU with different jurisdictions on small modular nuclear. We're developing out a hydrogen economy. We're being a responsible player in Confederation. We're respecting that we have to reduce emissions, but we're going to do it our way. We're going to do it uh, in a way that allows for us to continue to develop our resources, which we have a constitutional right to do as the court affirmed today. Right. And and just as a final point, uh, can you really just do it your way? I I mean, don't you have to do this at least in some sort of conjunction with the federal government? You keep asking them to respect your rights, but the court has ruled they have a role here. I mean, don't you also have to respect their rights and their ambitions in this? Well, as I said, I told Prime Minister Trudeau the very first call I had that I would be happy to work with him on a 2050 target. We developed our emissions reduction plan. I asked him to wait for it. He did. We did abatement curves so that we could figure out how quickly we could get to 2050. That work has been completed. I asked for us to have a table where we could get together and talk about how we would align our targets. I've been very constructive, and I'm going to continue to be constructive. But they 
cannot act unilaterally. That's what the Supreme Court said today. They cannot act unilaterally in our area of jurisdiction. And we're going to make sure that they uphold the spirit of what the, the court decided today. Doesn't that same argument apply that you also can't act unilaterally when it comes to things like greenhouse gas emissions? Well, I'm, I'm not trying to interfere in their ability to manage cross-border pipelines or cross-border transmission lines. Yeah, but emissions. Um, so I would say, well, look, I, I mean, that's a, this joint jurisdiction. Anytime you have an emissions cap that is a production cap, they collide with our rights. And we're just going to make sure that doesn't happen. Okay. Alberta Premier Daniel Smith, we always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. You bet. Thanks, David. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.